God's peace is so marvelous, isn't it? I uh, I was thinking while I was sitting there. How different life is for the believer, for those Christians who trust wholly in God and in His Word. I, I was thinking about, uh, you know, let's see, well, September will be two years ago. Um, I suffered cardiac arrest. Didn't have a heart attack. I suffocated and my systems began shutting down. Uh, it was during the hurricane and if you'll recall I was a, a bit heavier then <laughs> and uh, I wasn't sleeping a great deal and uh, during the hurricane and had been out to the marina battening down the sailboat and then doing the same at the home in preparation for the hurricane and so I'd become terrifically dehydrated and uh, Thursday morning after the hurricane had struck, the power was out in our area, and so I was uh, checking the generator regularly. And had returned to the breakfast room and apparently stood up, and when I did, I blacked out and struck my head. We have the Tio tile uh, floor in the kitchen, and I struck my head and was uh, knocked unconscious and was laying on my two large stomach just pressing into my solar plexus so I stopped breathing in effect and when my uh, Catherine found me providentially she was uh, visiting from Washington I was uh, unresponsive and she got my uh, youngest son Christopher uh, who's a student at UF and he had just learned CPR at some project they were involved in there and uh, they rolled me over, no small feet, and I was blue and cold. And uh, they began applying CPR for some 10 minutes. And Christopher told me later he was fighting this rising panic because nothing was changing. And the, uh, when the emergency personnel finally arrived, they put a defibrillator on, and, and I responded. And um, when I first began to speak, it was unintelligible. And then eventually um, I, I, I was able to speak, so it sounded like I was three sheets of the wind. <laughs> um, and I don't remember anything from those first two days, and I'm, I don't mind not remembering, frankly. Uh, but uh, the doctors came in, a team of cardiologists came in after a couple of days, and they said, well, you're a bit of a mystery, Mr. Easton. And I said, that's what my wife tells me. <laughs> Uh, but they said, there's no damage at all to your heart. And the medical personnel who were involved thought it was quite a wonder that um, I hadn't suffered any neurological damage of any sort. At least they were able to determine. <laughs> um, and uh, the doctor told me, he said, listen, uh, Mr. Easton, you died. I didn't actually die. But he said, in effect, had your children not been there, you would have died. And I don't belittle that. I don't dismiss that. I couldn't talk to my children. My children really were heroes. Um, uh, 
Beth was at UF, and she wasn't there, and my kids, my eldest son, Matthew, and Christopher, my youngest son, and Katie were real troopers that morning. I mean, they, uh, it was rather extraordinary. They really were heroic, and I couldn't talk to them about it for weeks without weeping. Um, but I had to take umbrage with the doctor. I didn't do it. Didn't actually say it, but I thought to myself, God's promises are sure. And we have laid hold of those promises. And for decades, believed God's word regarding length of days. If my children weren't there, I don't know how God would have sustained me, how he would have preserved me. But I'm convinced God is faithful to his word. And somehow would have. Now, he chose to to preserve my life in that fashion. But at the end of the day, I'm convinced God's promises, which we've laid hold of, have trusted in for decades. I believe it's God's word that sustained me that day. And there's something extraordinary about trusting God's word. Uh, it's We cannot afford, forgive the double negative, not to trust God's word, to lay hold of those promises with real certainty. They are, uh, they are the difference between life and death, blessing and curse. I just want to encourage, that's not what I'm teaching on tonight, but as I sat there, I, I just thought, I want to encourage you. God's promises are, are sure. Despite what may be unfolding at the moment around you, God's promises are sure. We can afford to trust them with our whole heart and with real confidence and certainty that no matter how things might at the present appear, God will fulfill his promises. He's watching over his word to perform it in the lives of those who choose simply to believe. Um, for the last couple of weeks, uh, um, Jackie had asked me to share during the month of July. Now, we'll be gone the last Thursday. We're heading to Texas to visit with our uh, oldest daughter and Gabe and, and her granddaughters there. But I had been preparing um, to share with you about, um, uh, along the lines of the problem of evil. This morning, however... I was given pause in that. I really felt as if God said, I want you to share this word tonight. And so, wisely, I've done that. Um, let's look at, at uh, Mark, the ninth chapter, please. Father, we're so grateful to you for your peace and the quietness it yields in our minds. I pray that 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 quietness and peace reigns in our minds and our hearts tonight, that we might hear your voice as it speaks, cause your word to come alive in us. Pray that we encounter Jesus Christ tonight during our time together. In his name we pray, amen. Mark 9, this is an interesting story. 
Let's begin with verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. I'm reading to you out of the New American Standard Bible. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Now it sounds at first as if Jesus awakened on the wrong side of the bed that morning. He just sounds ill-tempered here, doesn't he? But he's not. Jesus is expressing, I wouldn't say frustration, but deep concern over the simple idea that evil can rule the circumstances within our lives if we don't erect a sure defense against them. If we find ourselves unable to resist and overcome them. God created a perfect world. And he created it for us. Evil tainted that. We, we live in a fallen world now. And even as believers, we are, while we are very much product of uh, salvation, product of God's workmanship, we are also products of a fallen world, aren't we? And there are, there are issues in our lives uh, waiting to be resolved. There are circumstances in our lives that don't reflect necessarily God's will or His best for us. And simple trust in God can resolve all of those problems and can right all of those circumstances when we choose to believe, when we tr choose to trust in Him. And so what we're, what we're, I think, seeing here in Jesus' remark is His deep concern and perhaps frustration uh, that there is such a gulf sometimes between uh, God's best for us and what we are at any given moment actually walking in. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I want you to read again with me that remark. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, now I... Uh, prefer the the translation offered here in the NASB. It's a bit truer to the original text. If you can, Jesus asked. There's a tone of irony 
in that obviously rhetorical question. If you can, the man said, if you can. Jesus immediately begins to transfer, he begins to shift the onus for outcome to the Father, to this individual who's petitioning God for a change in their circumstance, for a miracle. If you can, if rather, if you can, all things are possible to him that believes. Can you say that with me tonight? Just say it aloud, please. All things are possible to him that believes. We've all heard that. But I wonder if we've actually given much thought to the impact that might make on the whole of our lives if we really and truly reckoned with it. All things are possible to him that believes. Immediately, or excuse me, I'm, uh, yes, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's an extraordinary um, statement to me. You remember Jesus, in fact, we'll see this same account in, in Matthew 17, and there are a few important details, I think, that are provided there. How much faith does God require of us? Which is the what? Smallest of all herb-bearing seeds. He requires just enough trust for you and I to embrace him in that moment and say, yes, Lord, I believe. This man added an important caveat, help thou mine unbelief. Now that statement, it, it may have reflected his real state, that he may also have been struggling with doubt, but it also reflected humility. And humility really is the seedbed for authentic faith. Real faith in God cannot begin until faith in anything else and everything else, including ourselves, has been abandoned. So this is a remarkably um, humble statement, isn't it? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. There's something marvelous about humility. It really swings wide uh, the doors for God to do his thing. Lord, I do believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And what does Jesus do? The air really blows up here. Um, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? 
And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but what? Prayer. Now this is a little oblique, um, and so we're going to look at Matthew, the 17th uh, chapter. In fact, you can turn there now. Um, the same account, some additional details, colored a bit differently. Now the disciples <laughs> had watched all of this unfold, I'm sure, with wonder. And they had also, uh, they witnessed Jesus' uh, consternation at the unbelief. And so very wisely, they, they waited until they were alone with him. And they said, no, um, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus happily answers this question. In Matthew 17, uh, let's begin, I think, with verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up Jesus, to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples. They could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Now again, it's easy to read that remark and think, he was really in a foul mood that day. I mean, that, that is such a strident tone he's taking with someone who clearly has a need and is seeking help. But, and, and this is important, I think, for us to uh, uh, reckon with. God loves us. He loves us so. But we find these, um, this ominous warning written to us in the first epistle of Peter, be sober. Be vigilant, ever watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I far prefer to think about my loving father and his doting care over my life. But if I'm going to reckon with that reality, because I live on planet Earth, where according to uh, Paul, Satan is the god of this this earth, this world, this world system, then I need also to reckon with this uh, unpleasant reality that I do have an adversary. Jesus referred to him as a strong man. He is prowling about on the lookout for someone to devour. I don't want to be, I don't want to be an entree. On, on Satan's table. Peter said, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, you're not being singled out. Everyone who dwells on the face of the earth deals with this reality. It is a fallen world. And, and so... Jesus is issuing here. He, he's not, he is not, uh, he's not whining and carping. He's not grousing with these people. Hey, I have better things to do. I was actually on my way to, 
to some place I wanted to be, and now I'm being interrupted with yet another need. And I sent my disciples, I dispatched them to resolve these situations, and, and they failed, and, and now here you are, uh, and, and you're requiring this help of me, and I'm just annoyed with you. Not that at all. Jesus knew the scope of his mission. He was, his earthly ministry would, would uh, last only a few years. Then he would leave. And, and, and that mission would transfer fully to his disciples. That includes you and, and me, doesn't it? And so Jesus is, there's a real urgency in what he's saying. He's, he's urging his disciples to grapple with this reality. The reality of evil in the world. The reality of this, this um, interloper who, who wants to interpose between God and his creation. Who wants to, to rob us of God's best and who really is out to destroy the imprint of God upon man. So he's not angry. There is a, I want you to instead sense the urgency that Jesus is addressing this situation with. And not simply the man's situation, but this situation that is being created through unbelief. Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, now listen closely, please. Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So what is, what is at issue here? What was the real problem? The littleness of their faith. And yet we read, uh, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. So he's requiring of us little faith, but he's saying the challenge here is the littleness of your faith. What is he suggesting? that we must have great faith? No, we have to have consistent faith. What do you think uh, created the problem? Because the disciples had gone out. You recall in Luke, the ninth chapter, and they cast out demons, and they healed the sick. They returned to Jesus uh, from this extraordinary adventure, and, and they were sharing almost breathlessly with him what had happened. Why the problem now? Well, this is an unusual case. The boy would throw himself into the fire. He would stiffen, he would grow mute, and then throw himself into the fire and into the water. I, I mean, it appears that this spirit was, was over time slowly destroying this boy. I recall I was in, I don't know, the ninth or 10th grade, when a young man, I was eating in the cafeteria uh, uh, during lunch, a young man uh, near me had an epileptic seizure. I'd never witnessed that, and it was very, very frightening. He, he threw himself to the floor, and chairs were literally flying around. 
uh, and he had absolutely no control over his body. And several large teachers, a couple of coaches came, and it took all of their strength to restrain him until the seizure had passed. Um, that uh, remains imprinted on my memory today. I can see it as if it happened yesterday. They're dealing with a young man here who is exhibiting something perhaps they had never witnessed before. It was shocking to them. Their faith withered in the presence of this extraordinary display of, of possession. When Jesus returned to his own hometown, he could there do no mighty work save what? He healed a few minor ailments, like a headache or something like that. In your own life, haven't you ever um, faced a need that didn't seem terribly significant? You prayed, and, and you left that time of prayer very confident, and you really didn't think about it again. But we've all found ourselves turning to God in prayer because we're facing a crisis. It feels different, doesn't it? Now, from God's vantage point, I don't think we have big problems and small problems. I don't think there's any point in time when we're praying where God says, oh, oh that's, that's a big problem. I don't think God really ranks them. He heals uh, uh, some horrible disease just as easily as he heals a headache. We're the ones that tend to rank our problem. And I think when they saw this young man and um, the manifestation of uh, the presence of this spirit in him and its effect, that their faith wavered. I, there's an idea, some, some think, well, you know, we, prayer and fasting is required because some demons are more intractable than others. But if every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, then I think that the name of Jesus enjoys the same degree of power and authority over any and all evil spirits. I, I don't think that it requires more power to drive out one demon than it does another. Do you recall when the, the uh, man was healed at the gate called Beautiful and a uh, crowd began to rush around Peter and John? He said to them, hey, it's not by our own holiness or power that this man was healed. It was by what? The name and faith in the name. That name is as potent today as it was then, it is as potent at any given moment. Every knee must bow, every tongue confess. What is it uh, that Jesus is suggesting prayer and fasting helps to resolve, helps to drive out? Well, let's look again at uh, Matthew 17. Why couldn't we cast him out?
because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you, but this kind, this kind of what? What is the subject of this statement that Jesus is making? He hasn't, he hasn't even referenced in this remark the, the um, demonic spirit, has he? What does he reference? Faith. This kind, this kind of what? I think that it is quite possible that Jesus is suggesting this kind of unbelief does not come out but by prayer and fasting. What, how would prayer and fasting impact that? Jesus prayed often, didn't he? He, he um, would um, leave behind the crowds, leave his disciples, and seek out a private place, and he would commune with God there. What is it that we're achieving through prayer and fasting? What is prayer and fasting? I mean, it has a function, obviously, but what is the nature of prayer? What is it that we're actually doing in prayer? Hmm? We're, we're, we're in a conversation with God, aren't we? I mean, in its simplest form, that's what prayer is. We're communicating with God. Um, now, we want to pray in faith, but how is it that prayer could actually help to bolster our faith? I think if we approach... It's, often we think of prayer as an exercise, and it is, and it is a response to needs in our own lives and the lives of of uh, others, uh, but prayer, we, we think of it sometimes as a discipline. I don't really care to use that word. It, it, it's intimidating to some people. I prefer to call it a, a spiritual practice rather than a discipline. It's something we engage in. What is it about engaging in prayer that might encourage faith in our lives, that might strengthen faith in our lives? I'm asking you. I'm sorry, what? Intimacy builds trust. What is it that is happening in prayer? Do you recall when Peter, he was writing within the context of marriage, but he said that God loves, I think it's 1 Peter 3, 4, he loves a, a meek and a quiet spirit. It is in his sight of great value. A meek and a quiet spirit. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now, we, we can all read um, the Logos, can't we? But I'm convinced there is a, a wonderful release of faith in our lives when we experience um, the voice of God in our lives. When His Word comes alive because He's spoken it to us. And I believe God is speaking to us constantly but it becomes very difficult for us to distinguish his voice from among its imitators because we're so distracted so often. Spiritual reality is um, really what governs, I think, and rules the physical world in which we live. But we are far more conscious of the physical world and physical realities. I mean, generally speaking, aren't we? I mean, we're in contact with this world every day. Uh, you know the first thing I often think of when I wake up? Yeah. 
Yes, that's unfortunate, but true. Often I think I need to pull back the cover. I need to slip into the restroom. <laughs> I'm aware of physical things. But there is, there is another reality that I'm less aware of. Why do you suppose that is? Why am I more immediately aware of physical reality than I am spiritual reality? Huh? Well, but we're spirits too. Here's why I think, this is, this is my opinion. It takes no effort to be aware of spiritual reality or excuse me, a physical reality, it imposes itself on us. Spiritual hunger, we can become keen to it. We can be sensitive to it and aware that it exists. But physical hunger imposes itself on you. Hey, I'm hungry. And it even has a voice. If I grow tired... I'm almost immediately aware of it. There are physical impulses that we are deeply aware of because they impose themselves on us. Spiritual reality is far more subtle. I have to be very intentional in turning my attention to spiritual reality if I'm going to be aware of it. Prayer helps me to do that. Prayer, it grounds me in that reality. It connects me in a very significant way. It serves as a nexus between the world of the Spirit and this physical world that we are in, enjoying movement in now. But it is also a nexus between God and my reborn human spirit. Once I turn to him in prayer, that is such an intentional act, I can begin to devote my senses to it. I can turn my ear toward him. God is always speaking. Jesus spoke to multitudes, but in reality, he was speaking only to a select group. Who was he speaking to? He said this constantly. What group was Jesus speaking to? He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. If I will turn my ears toward him, I'm going to hear God because he's speaking. But it is an, it, it is an intentional act. I choose to do that. I, it is so easy for me to um, gauge my physical needs and desire. I don't have to listen closely. I don't have to tune in. I do. I think of coffee almost immediately in the morning. Our coffee turns on automatically. It grinds the beans, drops them in the basket, and when I wake up, I think, thank you, Jesus. Oh, coffee. <laughs> oh, coffee. <laughs> yeah, Thank you, Jesus, for coffee. 
physical needs make themselves known constantly. Spiritual needs, um, spiritual reality is something we have to tune into. But the, the uh, more practiced we become in that, the more capable uh, we become in that arena. We can hear God's voice more easily, discern it uh, more quickly uh, from among its imitators. Prayer allows us to achieve that. It's not, it's not simply turning to prayer because we have a need or I'm going to worship God. We need to view prayer as in an environment we're entering into that allows me to become centered in the reality that is God and His kingdom. And I, and I can begin to hear Him more clearly. When He speaks fasting, prayer and fasting, fasting achieves the same thing, doesn't it? But you know, I want to say something else real quickly and, and then we're going to close because I, I'm supposed to limit this to 30 minutes and I've already blown through that. Um, let's go to Psalm 23. And let me just say quickly on our way there and we'll close with Psalm 23. Fasting achieves the same thing. It is denying those impulses, those physical impulses. It's, it's quieting the voice of your physical body and the demands of your soul. It is, it is being intentional. In almost starving that voice. And transferring our devotion at that moment and our attention entirely to God, the invisible God and His invisible kingdom. Centering in on that reality at the cost of this other reality and its demand. But there's something that happens in prayer that we all need so desperately. I think another challenge that we have in, uh, with regard to unbelief is uh, there's brokenness in all of our lives. And it, those, our brokenness can intrude upon our intimacy with God and our intimacy with others. And often there's there's a, a need for healing and restoration in the interior of our lives before faith can really flower fully in our lives and, and yield the sort of fruit that's possible. And prayer as a, a practice, a spiritual practice, I, I think it helps to provide that. It provides a place and a moment for, for Jesus to begin to address the brokenness in our lives and bring real healing. I had an unusual experience. I was, uh, was my first pastor in Boston, and uh, you know there were a number of circumstances I experienced uh, growing up in less than um, an ideal situation, and it had yielded some some challenges in my life and some real brokenness. And, you know, I was, I felt like I was working through that. But um, 
I recall there was on Tuesday nights we would join with a couple in uh, New Hampshire. We would drive up from Boston and we would spend the evening praying. And as I was praying uh, one evening, this this phrase kept sounding in, in my spirit: "Joy cometh in the morning." And I was puzzled. I, what, what what are you trying to say to me? And I I prayed and listened carefully and heard nothing. Just this phrase repeating itself. And I thought, well, maybe tomorrow morning's going to be very special. Uh, the next, uh, two, two evenings later, we had our midweek service, and uh, one of the women in the church paused at the door and said, I just read this book, and it was so fabulous, and I just was impressed to loan it to you. And I, I thanked her. I receive books regularly as a, as a minister. People want you to read them. And uh, I I tucked it in uh, with my things and returned home that evening. And I left it on uh, the coffee table in the living room. And I thought I'll, I'll get to it at some point. We were entertaining guests the next evening, and I, uh, the husband and I, had uh, gone into the living room. We were chatting, and then he found. Uh, I, I think that I had a, a book about something we were discussing, and so he was reading through it for the moment. And I picked that book up. And I turned to the first page rather than the table of contents, which I ordinarily do. And um, I began reading the first page, and I was about halfway through, and I realized I was weeping. And I thought, oh, this is awkward. So I stopped reading immediately, sort of brushed the tears away so that uh, you know, I, I wouldn't create an uncomfortable moment for our guest. And I thought, I, I really need to look at this this evening. And so uh, later that night, our guest left, and I went and, and, and grabbed that book, and I, I took it with me uh, to bed. Beth and I were retiring for the night, and I opened up to the table of contents, and uh, the book was, uh, I think it was Hannah Hernard, Nine Feet on High Places, and there are a number of chapters, I've forgotten how many, but the book is broken up into two primary um, um, what sections with multiple chapters in each section, and the second section is titled Joy Cometh in the Morning. And God used that book wonderfully to minister to me at that, um, at that time, but I began to realize that uh, brokenness in our lives really can intrude upon our relationship with God. There are things that we find difficult to receive from him. There's a degree of intimacy that, that can um, be diminished because of brokenness in our lives. And prayer as a practice, a spiritual practice, I think creates an environment in which Jesus is able to reach into our lives and minister healing on a very profound level and in a fashion that's so complete that we're able to move beyond that hurt. Psalm 23, I, I think, captures that so beautifully. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is a picture of such protection and serenity and quietness and peace and love, isn't it? Prayer allows us to enter, I think, into just such an environment and experience the presence of, of God in Christ in a way that, that um, yields wholeness and with it real faith that doesn't wither in the face of, of significant challenge, challenge that we may interpret as being uh, greater than other challenges. And um, we will we, discover that uh, we can experience victory in those well. Father, thank you for your word and for this time together tonight. And I pray that um, you take these words and breathe life to them. Give them lasting meaning. I pray most of all that as we uh, take the time to think through these things, that we hear you speak. And we sense your, your love and your kindness and your tenderness. Lord. In Jesus' name. I'm, I really, Don, especially, I'm so sorry I ran late. I'm, I tried to keep it to 30 minutes, but um, I failed miserably. <laughs> I'll keep working toward that. All right, uh, uh, Don is going to be...